Activating the time portal. Land before time land, land before time land. From the Cretaceous to the Jurassic, from the Great Green Valley to the big, big water. This land was made for time and land. Welcome to Land Before Timeland, the podcast where we watch every single Land Before Time film, all 14 of them in order. I'm Chris Nebergall, with me is Madeline May, and thank you for joining us on this amazing journey, and an amazing journey it's going to be, wouldn't you say so? Oh, absolutely. It's a lot like the journey to the center of the earth, except instead of more um, layers of rock, we are getting worse and worse dinosaur movies. Yes. Uh, This is a lot like the journey to the Great Valley, except in reverse, where we're leaving the Great Valley and journeying out into a wasteland. Yes, it's uh, 100 years of solitude for kids. Uh, But uh, the first movie in the series is actually really, really good. Oh, one of the best cartoons ever made. Um, I think it's an absolutely astounding piece of work and the only fun time we're going to have in this entire podcast. Yeah, this is this is kind of our outlier episode, oddly enough. Yeah, if you, if you want the, the giggles and the jiggles and all that stuff, maybe s- skip this one. But I promise we have some interesting things to say about this one. So if you like that stuff, please stick around for this first one. Yeah, this is going to be 13 episodes of making fun of some of the most terrible, poorly thought out, straight-to-video kids movies ever made but one episode of praising one of the greatest animated films of all time. Uh, So without further ado, let's get into it. We just watched the original Land Before Time. It came out in 1988, was it? Directed by Don Bluth, produced by Steven Spielberg and George Lucas and Kathleen Kennedy and Frank Marshall, the whole, you know, Amblin Entertainment, Lucasfilm uh, extended family. Uh, And... This was one of the last films that Don Bluth would make with Steven Spielberg. They parted ways over creative differences uh, shortly after. And I think most people would hold this film as being in Don Bluth's top three or four films he ever made. Yeah, there's really three main films that we think about when talking about Don Bluth. Uh, Secret of Nim, An American Tale, and The Land Before Time. After that, the uh, quality definitely um, uh, dips. And not that there aren't any peaks or interesting films after Land Before Time, but he never reaches those same heights again. This is basically his last, what I would say, classic movie. Yeah, a little little bit after this, you get into Troll in Central Park territory. Or uh, Rock-A-Doodle, which, I mean, I love but it's not a good movie. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and the, the animation in this film is is beautiful, and it is of a, of a style that is all Don Bluth's and uh, very, very unique. I do think it owes a debt of influence to, to Disney to some extent, in particular to the Rite of Spring sequence from Fantasia, which you know, seems to have been the influence for the entire movie. I also just briefly want to mention that the score of this movie is incredible. Yes, uh, amazing score done by... Um, it's James Horner, I think. James Horner, who did all the... Uh, Every James, James Cameron, Cameron movies, movie. yeah. Yeah. 
uh, and also the best Star Trek uh, score, which is The Wrath of Khan. Yes. <laughs> um, and uh, the music is powerful. Like, it really lends a sense of grandeur and majesty to the world. You know, the, the, the music never gets, you know, kind of, I don't want to say, like, childish, but it never gets, like, light and whimsical that much. You know, that there's no musical kind of numbers. There's no, like, comedy underscoring. The music is very just almost like nature documentary majestic. Yeah. Uh, which helps create the power of the world that the kids are lost in and make, make you feel like this is a grand and important story in their lives, which it is. I remember as a kid, you know, watching a lot of kids' movies where because, you know, the the music and, and the, the style of the film was telling me not to think it was important, that I didn't think it was important. You know, there were a lot of kids' movies where I was like, oh, yeah, whatever, this is just fun. But I remember feeling emotional in The Land Before Time because the score just communicates how much this matters, you know. Yeah, um, I agree. that The score is incredible. It really matches the the visuals and in, in power and majesty the um uh the basic plot is that um all of these dinosaurs are trying to get to uh the great valley because there is a uh, famine there's no food anywhere but they know that if they go to this mystical place it's gonna they will be able to survive um along the way um we meet littlefoot and um his friends sarah ducky petrie Spike, they all kind of hang out, interact, and we just follow them through uh, trials and tribulations until they get to their uh, final destination. The, the one thing that immediately jumped to me is how little plot there is in The Land Before Time, the original. It's a very simple story. It's really atmospheric. It really lets the art uh, do the storytelling. Um, we don't even really hear them, uh, the dinosaurs talk uh, uh, for a good a good chunk of the beginning of the film, and even once they do start communicating, they don't really talk a whole lot. Like the dialogue is is kind of very simple and, and, and matter of fact, and it kind of just expresses how um uh child um how, how the dinosaurs are children that we're, we're mainly following. Yeah, I I actually read a little bit about the production of this movie in preparation for this for this podcast. Okay. And uh, originally, I was wondering this when I was watching the movie, originally the plan had been to do a completely dialogue-free movie. That was Steven Spielberg's idea. He wanted, Yeah, he wanted to do a movie that was just like the dinosaur sequence from Fantasia, which, you know, this movie owes a heavy debt of inspiration to. Um, and Don Bluth disagreed. And everybody else who was working on the script, the screenwriter had to kind of whittle Spielberg down and explain, look, kids are not going to be able to hold their attention for 90 minutes with no dialogue whatsoever. Yeah, I and I'm going to uh, agree with them. I think Spielberg was was definitely in the wrong, especially since some of these characters are so iconic now. Like, where would be would we be without Ducky's, you know, yep, yep, yep kind of stuff? Or um, uh, I love the way Petrie talks. He has a fun way of, of speaking. Yeah, and I do think they reached a good balance because, like I said before, there isn't a lot of dialogue. Like, what 
dialogue is there is is really good and really efficient and kind of um, moving the characters forward and helping you get a better understanding of the characters. Yeah, the uh, the movie um, is more motivated by the little moments than it is by the big picture or by plot intricacies. This this movie kind of takes you from one uh, little scene to another, and there are entire scenes that progress with no dialogue, and you know just sort of whimsical little things that happen only with the assistance of animation and music. And so you you end up kind of feeling your way through the film more than thinking your way through it a lot. Yeah, this film is totally okay with slowing down to just show the the dinosaur cubs um, playing in a swamp or having fun, which has nothing to do with the plot, obviously, but it tells you so much about the characters and who they are. There are um, some kind of thematic um, ideas that run through the film. For one, there's this idea of kind of a um, uh, of a racism between the, the dinosaurs. Um, Sarah, who is a triceratops, um, her dad uh, says, oh, uh, three horns don't hang out with long necks. Long necks are the brontosauruses. Right, there's this whole idea of we just keep to our own kind because we always have. And the film is really cool by subverting that, that um, Littlefoot, who's kind of our main character, um, his group of friends is one of six different kinds of dinosaurs, including him. And it's, I think, really kind of beautiful that we get like this little piece of like why, um, this little piece of that the, the dinosaurs don't interact with each other, but they also don't know why. Uh, Littlefoot's mother just says that's kind of how it's always been, and Littlefoot is is questioning that. And it leads to what I, what I think is one of the morals or one of the ideas of the film is how the younger generation are, are building on and improving on what the older generation has done. Um, we get a lot of that through the, um, the kind of the, it's a, it's a kind of spirituality that, that only works in children's cartoons uh, where it's not religious because it doesn't like expect you to anything of you like specifically doesn't ask you to like do something specifically it's more like just kind of believing in yourself and believing in nature it's not saying oh you have to worship this it's more like there's a general kind of magic within um the universe and you just kind of have to keep going yeah there's there's definitely a lot of um the this idea that the adults uh, provide this sage wisdom and this guidance that Littlefoot kind of carries like a flame through the entire film. You know, his mother uh, is kind of always with him. But at the same time, they are improving on the world of, of the adults. They, they are very, very quick to throw out the notion that they shouldn't uh, hang out with other dinosaurs of their own kind because they immediately realize they need each other for survival. Right. Well, except for Sarah, who's kind of the one that, that hangs the longest because she's a very stubborn character. That's yeah. kind of her, her defining personality trait. And with Sarah, it's more about her um, her sort of bravado, her, her ego in a sense, that she just really, really wants to prove herself that she can go it alone. You know, that she doesn't need anyone else. And she finds out 
multiple times throughout the film until it finally sinks in that, yes, she does need other people, and they need her sometimes. And, and I think that is an actual uh, nature versus nurture because we see that her ideas about how she should interact with other dinosaurs is purely nurture because in the, in, in the beginning of the film, she is playing with Littlefoot like there's no problem, and it's not until her dad says, you don't do that, that she suddenly becomes kind of mean and turns on Littlefoot for, for a majority of the film. And that's where we really kind of see that she's being brought up in a certain way while the actual, you know, the, the nature aspect of it is that they all need to work together. Right. It's, it's all for her that she wants to be seen in a certain way. You know, she wants to be viewed. She, she wants her elders to be proud of her for being the way a Triceratops is supposed to be or a three horn in the language of the film. And Every time she's with the other dinosaurs, she's bragging and she's trying to get them to see her as, as brave. But whenever she's on her own, she's terrified and yeah. sad and miserable and, and scared. And so, you know, she kind of realizes at the end it doesn't, it doesn't matter uh, her trying to put on all of this bravado. It's fine for her just to be seen as a member of the community. <clears throat> on, on that note, one of the... One of the scenes that I read about that was deleted, um, and apparently this scene never even made it to animation stage, this was deleted uh, in storyboards, was they were going to stumble upon a group of adult dinosaurs of Ducky's species, and Ducky was going to go and talk to them, and they had water. They had like a pond of water that they controlled. And Ducky was going to say, oh, great, you know, me and my friends can all drink. And the adult uh, duck, ducky, duckbills, whatever, whatever they call Ducky's species in the movie, were going to refuse to let Littlefoot and all the other dinosaurs have the water because they're, they're not duckies. They're of a different type. And then it was going to be revealed that they were feuding with this other group of dinosaurs, like pachycephalosaurs, who had all the food who controlled like a grove of trees. And the, the message was that these two groups each has something that the other needs to live, but they were going to refuse to give it to each other. And the kids were going to have to leave knowing that these two warring groups of adults were going to die without helping each other out. And that was cut because it was a little too on the nose with the message. And, and, and also, yeah, just a little too much at that point. I like that the film doesn't really, like, um, uh, batter you with that message, that it kind of just lets the characters just live and, and kind of um, interact within the influence of this kind of racism that their parents have. A racism that their parents don't even understand, so why would the kids understand it? Um, I think, yeah, something like that is just a lot happening <laughs> in, a, in a movie that's already like moving, moving at, at a pretty good pace. Um, and also that, that is very simple. Like, I think the film works because there aren't moments like that. Like there are just moments of just these dinosaurs kind of interacting with each other and hanging out and, and having fun, but there's never a scene like that. That would be the only scene of its kind in the movie where there's like an actual conflict or like a specific thing going on between other dinosaurs. You don't even see really any other dinosaurs once they're together as a group. You just don't see any adult dinosaurs. It just becomes entirely a children's story, and I think that works really well, and I think having a scene of like adult dinosaurs doing stuff kind of 
breaks that illusion and also kind of it also would would beg the question of like well why don't they just follow these adult dinosaurs to the great valley yeah <laughs> you know like it, it, it after, brings up a lot of plot holes yeah after littlefoot's mom dies and we see uh rooter the the friendly ankylosaurus who just gives littlefoot his little pep talk and walks away the only adult dinosaurs that we see are the sharp tooth who's trying to eat them and the one scene where we see all of those adult long necks who set a bad example by charging out of nowhere and eating an entire grove of trees and not leaving any for the kids and then running away. Yeah. So there are no adults in in the movie at that point, basically. The kids are totally on their own in this, this hostile landscape. I want to talk about probably one of the most um, memorable and infamous scenes in the original Land Before Time, which is um, the death of Littlefoot's mother. Yes. Um, um, which which is a beautiful scene um, on par with some of the great uh, deaths of um, animated uh, cinema, Bambi, Lion King. I mean, take your pick uh, on these. All the all the things that make kids break down and cry and be traumatized for life. And, and, and the scene itself is truly amazing because before this moment... Uh, Littlefoot's mother is shown as a towering force. Like the scale that she holds over the scene is incredible. It's almost like she is as big as the environment, which we also see in these very large and imposing uh, shots. Yeah, L- Littlefoot's mother is like a whole world to him. Like, yeah. you know, her body is so immense that he can seek shelter you know, on her back or or beneath her or just anywhere in her vicinity, she represents home and safety and the entirety of of your universe protecting you. There's there's this wonderful shot where Little Fitz walking behind her and and he calls out to her to say something, and she has to crane her massive neck around to face him to talk to him, and it takes like like five seconds of screen time for her to turn her big neck around. And that shot, you know, seems kind of awkward, but it's just to suggest her size and her her power and the the sort of importance of 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 how big she is to Littlefoot. And I love that the filmmakers uh, made that decision to show that because it would be so easy to just make her movements just like regular or fast, like anything else in the movie. But the fact that her movements are so different from even Littlefoot, who's just you know a, who's also a brontosaurus but smaller, I think really just gives you just the sense of how powerful she is to Littlefoot. Yeah, and this movie, with with the scale, does an amazing job of conveying what it's like to be a child. Because if you remember being a child, your brain didn't really, like, have a concrete way of perceiving scale yet. You know, you'll, you have these memories of being a kid and things like tables just towering over you and... I don't know about you, but my memories of being a kid, the scale of things is rather inconsistent. Oh, yeah. You, know, it, you, you live in this world that is just kind of imperceptibly vast, and the animation pulls that off, the way the, the kids feel tiny in these vast spaces and everything just seems so impossibly distant and yet somehow close at the same time. And even down to the movement, the 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 kids the characters are are portrayed so well in their kind of clumsiness 
you know, because the adults are are so huge and so graceful, and the kids are always like kind of stumbling and slipping and 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 tripping and tumbling over each other, and it just kind of suggests their their helplessness. Just to give the movie a perspective, like to have it from the point of view of a character, um, not just from like a narration standpoint, but from like a visual standpoint. Like we see things as Littlefoot does because he's so small, everything is so big. I mean, the closest um, similar, the clo- closest comparison I can make is, um, is, is Rugrats, which is around the same time, maybe coming out a couple years later. Uh, which also is amazing at showing scale and perspective from the the viewpoint of these babies. And I think that is the thing that's, com- as we'll see, is completely gone in the sequels. The sequels toss all of that stuff um, out the window. But here, at least, we get um, this this really great sense of scale. Now, let's go back to the, the, the death of the mother. Because she is so big, we've gotten this uh, perspective of her as this kind of larger-than-life figure when she dies she looks like a mountain she looks like she's just another part of nature because she she looks like the top of a large structure yeah she at first uh littlefoot can't pick her apart from the mountains and the rocks that she's kind of laying against um and then the film kind of plays with scale later in in the very very heartbreaking scene that follows where littlefoot's wandering alone in the these big rocky canyon kind of areas and he sees his own shadow which is being projected across a mountain at such immense scale because it's sunset and the lights coming from a weird angle that he his shadow appears the size of his mother and he thinks it's his mother at first and you know gets closer to it and it gets smaller but then for the rest of the film as he's wandering there are shots where that big giant shadow is walking alongside him. Yeah. Which is very symbolic and very powerful. Yeah, because it shows, you know, the very kind of classic idea that, you know, uh, your loved ones are always with you even after death. Um, it's no it's no coincidence that one of the landmarks they, they have to find in order to know that they're on the right path to the Great Valley is a mountain that is a giant long neck. Yeah. That's very much... Um, um, it's, it's very much on purpose to show how important um, his his mother is and also how, like, natural death is in the whole life life cycle is. This, this movie has its own uh, circle of life. I think it's just called The Great Circle is what they call it. Yeah, I think so. The Great Circle where, you know, people, you know, they're born, they grow, they grow, and they die, and they kind of return to the earth. And... That's really what this movie is saying is what happened to uh, Littlefoot's mother is that she kind of returned to the earth. So her spirit is kind of everywhere that, that Littlefoot is. That's, you know, uh, she she is the large rock that guides him. And then there's a scene at the end where um, Littlefoot sees her in the clouds, um, uh, very similar to Lion King, which came out a little, yeah, bit, yeah. a little bit later. About five years About five uh, later. years later. So the, um, a little bit, little bit ahead of its time. Uh, on that. Uh, yeah, the uh, the the omnipresence of uh, the mother is kind of the thing that gives Littlefoot strength because he uh, kind of follows the the sage advice of his mother almost like it's his spiritual faith, and the other characters question it at certain points in the film. 
um, but he ends up uh, he ends up correct. Um, this film, um, for for a children's film, um, especially a children's animation of the '80s, has I think one of the best uh, depictions of depression that I've ever seen in a film. There, uh, when Littlefoot loses his mother, he sinks into a, a deep depression and the narrator even says that there was like for a while Littlefoot couldn't even move he couldn't even remember to eat like he was so sad that like he just could not go forward or do anything and I I remember choking up because as, as someone um who who has depression I can I could definitely relate to that in some of my worst days that you really like depression isn't like you just cry all the time, right? It's yeah. it's not what people, you know, it's not that. It's you just don't want to do anything. Like you're just so sad that you would rather just like lay down and die than like make any kind of movement whatsoever. Yeah, it's this incapacitating thing. Yeah. You know, just this this malaise where it's less about being like sad and more about being just disinterested in absolutely anything. And what's really cool is that what breaks Littlefoot out of it is is making friends and, and talking with people, which I think is really beautiful because I can definitely relate that when I feel bad, when I talk with my friends and people that I that, you know, I care about and who care about me, it definitely gets me out of my stupor for sure. The, the scene that is, in retrospect, maybe my favorite scene in the movie uh, actually happens during that time. It's right after Littlefoot's mom dies um, right after the big tearjerker scene where he's talking to his mom as she's dying, we have this little scene of little baby pterodactyls uh, just kind of frolicking and playing with each other, and they're fighting over a berry. Um, and they, they all kind of uh, fight over the berry, and then they end up losing it, but then their mother appears with a whole bunch of berries, and they all get a berry, and they all happily walk away. And then they, one of them sees Littlefoot, uh, who is depressed. He's lying there just completely miserable. And this little baby pterodactyl is so sad to see Littlefoot in that state that he gives Littlefoot his berry. Uh, and that, I think, is the best, maybe the best scene in the film for me because there's so much going on in that scene to think about. That scene is accomplishing so much, but it's also such a simple scene. Uh, we've got, you know, the, the the playful pterodactyls are kind of creating levity right after Littlefoot's mother's death, but we're also communicating the importance of food with how they're treating the little berry like it's treasure. And then when their mother appears at the end, suddenly this scene that was kind of happy and fun for us carries this additional emotional weight that it's a sad thing for Littlefoot to be witnessing because he just lost his mother. And then just the the kindness of the the pterodactyl in in giving up his his food to Littlefoot, communicating the theme of of friendship and and unity and helping each other out. I, I think it's just it's just an excellent scene with a lot going on. It is really cool because what what that film shows is also the the good lessons that can come from parenting. We see these. Um, pterodactyls fighting over this food and then their mother 
shows I'm like, oh, there's enough food for you. You know, I'm going to give you some food. I'm going to share this food with you, my children, and they're all excited. And that pterodactyl, because they experience that, takes that lesson and, and gives it to Littlefoot. And Littlefoot himself has also been given this lesson by his mom, this idea of like sharing and working together. Uh, which is again shows this this film's kind of um, uh, kind of a continuing motif of um, parents and the kind of previous generation leaving lessons for um, the kids to kind of learn and the and for them to expand on and hopefully add to as part of the the great circle. Yeah. Um, I also want to talk for a moment about another aspect of the landscape, which is the starkness of it. Yeah. and the bleakness of it, and the color palette. This whole movie is in kind of grays and reds and browns, so that whenever precious, precious food appears, anything green, uh, like a leaf or, or a tree star, or a berry, like a red berry, appears, it really stands out because it is life. It is treasure. This this movie does a really excellent job of conveying the importance of even tiny little objects like that, you know, that could mean life or death for these animals. Yeah, this film is really good at showing that contrast of color and also just how much you can do with a limited palette. Because even though uh, you said that the movie has you know a lot of grays and, and you know kind of stark colors. It it look it doesn't look bland. This film doesn't look like um you know like a Call of Duty map or something like that where everything's no. brown and gray. Like they use these colors to incredibly imaginative effect. Like we were commenting as we were watching that these these backgrounds look almost like you know like classical oil paintings. Like they're yes. just so like it reminded me of like the the classic um uh, Disney era of like the 30s and 40s when they were really trying to get um, these backgrounds right. It was absolutely beautiful. And that, of course, is one of the things that goes immediately in the sequels. Yes, uh, all, that's, the all that stuff is gone. The stylization, yeah. the the detail, the scale, the color palette, it's all gone. Uh, gosh darn it, this is the one happy episode of the podcast we're going to yeah. have. We're not thinking about yeah. okay, we're the talking sequels. Only Which, about... You know what? As far as I know, the sequels are amazing. Yeah, as you far know, as we know at this point. I don't remember. I haven't seen them since I was like, a child. I don't want to say how old I was, but, <laughs> but you know, maybe Chomper is a cool character. I don't know. I liked him when I was a kid. The designs of the dinosaurs in this movie have a lot in common with the designs from the Rite of Spring in that they are kind of balloony. The dinosaurs are very kind of bulky, very kind of rounded, uh, very kind of soft uh, and, and almost, you know, uh, bouncy seeming, you know, in, in parts. And that uh, can all be traced to a paleo artist by the name of Charles R. Knight. Um, he was a, a sort of a naturalist artist where his specific talent was drawing natural scenes and prehistoric creatures. And he would take dinosaur skeletons and things like that and extrapolate what the creature must have looked like on the outside just from looking at the bones. And so he had a lot of uh, kind of creative license in determining what dinosaurs looked like. And he would be contracted to do illustrations for science books or murals for museums and, and things like that. 
and he is probably the most important artist for depicting dinosaurs of all time because for decades from when he was working in the in the 20s and 30s up until really the the dinosaur renaissance of the 70s and 80s he was responsible for what we thought dinosaurs looked like and every one of those old stop motion dinosaur movies took designs from him and that idea that you see in the land before time and in Rite of Spring and in so many of those other movies of dinosaurs as these big kind of bulky sluggish rounded creatures uh, all comes from his creative license because back then they thought dinosaurs were very very bulky you know uh, and sluggish and it wasn't until the 70s when we found out dinosaurs were uh, possibly warm-blooded even and very very agile and slender and quick and athletic but it took that idea another few years to catch up in pop culture and Jurassic Park was actually the first movie to kind of do that but I think that kind of Charles R. Knight look at dinosaurs really really works for Land Before Time because it's happens to lend itself very well to animation, to the kind of squishiness of animation and the way characters can kind of flex and, and warp a little bit. And it also just makes them feel kind of huggable, I guess. Yeah, no, there, there's a whole um, there, there's a whole section of like animation theory of like what animators will do to kind of convey um, emotion and characteristics just by how uh, a character is drawn. There are books about this kind of stuff. Um, like a lot of the um, classic uh, Looney Tunes cartoons is actually just basically like how to draw a cartoon. Like it's yeah. like not even it's not even like that complicated. They literally were just like, okay, this is how you draw something. We draw it like that. At the end. It's not. It, it's very simple and basic, but it's why it's timeless. And I th- agree with you that the designs of the characters in Land Before Time are amazing and iconic, and it's because. Like you said, they are kind of soft and they're they're very simple. They're not complicated, but they're also distinct. Like they have enough about them that you 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 recognize them. Like if you put a bunch of dinosaurs together, you would say, "Oh, that's Littlefoot," even if they're all brontosaurus cartoons. Like yeah, they have have a a look. Um, uh, I I'm reminded of of a film that made uh dinosaurs look uh too simple uh the good dinosaur which which is a film it's one of the many ripoffs of of land before time in a way uh we both happen to absolutely hate that one of the one of the worst movies um i've ever seen Uh, maybe uh the worst pixar movie um probably the worst pixar movie but in that film the the characters almost look like like Gumby models, like they look too yeah, they, simple. They almost look like balloon animals that yeah. a clown would fold exactly. for you. Exactly. Yes. Yes. You know? They look too bouncy, too rubbery. Which could not possibly clash more with the super high fidelity CGI landscapes in that movie. It looks really weird. It's, yeah. It, it looks utterly just jarring. Yeah, they don't look like they belong in that universe. Uh, so that's that's how you don't do it. Uh, another way you don't do it is another film that is. Almost a beat-for-beat mimicry of this movie is Disney's Dinosaur from uh, 2001, was it? 2000? Yeah, yeah, very similar um, 
Yeah, it's also about dinosaurs herding to like their own great valley of some kind. It's also about a dinosaur that loses his mom or parents or whatever. It starts with the egg kind of tumbling around. Yeah, there's a lot that uh, there's there's a lot of beats that are duplicated. Yeah, a dinosaur may, maybe the worst animation that Disney did. So yeah, Disney and Pixar just cannot get um, dinosaurs right. I don't know what's going on. They're not they're not doing a great job with that. They've just been trying to do what Don Bluth could do for all those years since Land Before Time. Yeah, and he's still the master of the animated dinosaur. Uh, but unfortunately, uh, it would be one of the last films that uh, Spielberg and Don Bluth would work together on. A few years after that, they kind of parted ways over creative differences. Despite the fact that the film is amazing, uh, it was not a harmonious production. Uh, okay. Steven Spielberg and Don Bluth apparently butted heads a lot. Uh, you know, Steven Spielberg, I, I think, is known for not being the most uh, collaborative person, not, not n- as a producer, not necessarily being great at delegating uh, creative tasks to his underlings. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, you, you've got the stories with him on, on the set of Poltergeist, just ghost directing the whole movie, even though he had the director of Texas Chainsaw Massacre there. You know, he, he couldn't trust him to, to just do, do the, the movie. Uh, and apparently he did that on this movie. And... One of the results of Spielberg's influence is that there were 10 minutes of finished animation cut from this movie at the end. Wow. Yeah, apparently this movie was much longer and it was heavily, heavily edited. I just, I just looked this up. Um, apparently the, the end scene where Littlefoot finds the Green Valley and there's the shot of, of the cloud shaped like his mother illuminating it all with a beam of light uh, previously happened during the time when Littlefoot sets off on his own and the other dinosaurs go the other way, Littlefoot was going to find the Green Valley and then realize that his friends had gone the wrong way and go back and rescue them. And that's when the whole lava sequence and the whole confrontation with the T-Rex was going to happen. And one of Spielberg's many edits was, let's switch that around so that none of them get to the Green Valley until the very end, and it's the reward for having gone through all of this. Yeah, that's really interesting. I can see I can see both versions working. Um, however, I think it's definitely set up, the final edit is definitely set up better for uh, what Spielberg wanted to do. Yeah, and, you know, there, there were also apparently a lot of scenes cut because they, they were too intense, you know, they were worried they would be too scary for children. There were a lot of the, the action and peril sequences were apparently just kind of dubbed, dumbed down a little bit mm-hmm. uh, in the editing process. But, you know, frankly, the film is dark and scary enough very, <laughs> as it is. Very true. You know, it's a very uh, frightening movie uh, for, for, for its target audience. I yeah. Think. Um, and Don Bluth was, was really good at that, making these kind of dark um, animations that looked very gritty, very real in, in a kind of a, uh, a terrifying way that you just uh, never see in a Disney production and will never see. Uh, I think the closest they ever got was maybe Black Cauldron, but that doesn't even hold a candle to something like Secret of Nim, um, which I think shows how important this movie was and how important American Tale and, and Little Nim were to um, the world of animation because these were all made in the 80s, which 
is, is known as the part of the dark age of Disney when they were making kind of very mediocre films. And this was really, I think, something that made everyone take notice that Disney couldn't just cruise along with these kind of pseudo sequels and these kind of rehash animations um, that they had to um, work harder. And I think Don Bluth kind of pushed everybody by making, again, stuff that I think rivals some of the best uh, animations that Disney has ever done. And once um, uh, Don Bluth left, um, uh, part of ways with Spielberg, Spielberg opened a new studio called Amblimation or Amblim Animation, some stupid title like that. And he just took all of the people that were part of uh, Don Bluth's studio and just had them make uh, more movies uh, including and, with including such cinematic classics as American Tale, Five Goes West, uh, We're Back a Dinosaur Story. Yes, there are three Steven Spielberg uh, dinosaur movies. Yes. Uh, well, I mean, f- like a bunch if you count all the Jurassic Parks he was involved in. But if 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 you counting Jurassic Park is one, there are three Steven Spielberg dinosaur movies. And uh, two uh, of them are well remembered. One of them is not. And uh, the last thing that an- this Amblin animation department made was Balto, which I'm sure people have fond memories of as a kid. Uh, unfortunately, none of these movies did well, I assume, because they um, just sh- shuttered the studio after Balto came out. Now, I, I liked We're Back as a kid uh, very, very much. Uh, having seen it again recently, it's incomprehensibly bonkers it's, but in a way that doesn't matter to a kid it's really fun to like i think it's one of those like so bad it's good like because it's just so insane that if you want to like get some friends together grab some drinks and get some um uh some some stuff to uh make you uh intoxicated then i think that's a good movie to watch it's fun to kind of make fun of um yeah this is this is just overall just a, a really good movie um, one of uh, Don Bluth's best it's part of his kind of his top three, you know, pick your order of which <laughs> of where to put those three. But it, it's definitely uh, one of his best, uh, one of the best animated films of the 80s. Um, and yeah, there's really not much more to say about it. It's a really good movie. That was followed by some really, really terrible sequels. So get ready because the rest of this podcast may take on a very different character than this episode. This episode, we are we are praising and analyzing an excellent film that has much to praise and analyze about it. And now we're just going to be complaining and making jokes for the, re- for the rest of it. Yeah, maybe skip this one. Just go to the second podcast that we do. <laughs> Um, maybe this one is less, uh, less funny. I don't know, but I enjoyed this conversation and, um, uh, I have a little quote here. Um, if, if the first land before time, um, inspired children to become paleontologists, then the sequels, uh, inspired them to go into accounting, um, as (laughs) far away from dinosaurs as possible. Hey, it's the end of the show, so thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast and want to make sure that we continue to make episodes of the podcast, uh, you can check out our Patreon slash Land Before Timeland. $5 will get you access to our exclusive other additional podcast, which talks about the cartoon series Land Before Time. Yes, it exists. I can't believe it either. We've been watching them, and we still don't believe it. 
Um, you will also get access to our regular podcast two days early. Brag to your friends. Uh, spoil it for them, I guess. Uh, we also have other projects, which you can see the links of in the description, including our YouTube channel, Remain Seated with Chris Nebergall, which talks about the theory that goes into theme park rides, as well as my uh, band, if you are into uh, music or that sort of thing, Inkblot. All of that will be in the description. All right, thanks for listening, and uh, let's hop back into that time portal. This land was made for time and land. 